This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Internal Revenue Service will cut the amount of paper and documents that aren't machine-readable through its pilot IRS program. A new informational posting lists two other verticals, too, digital intake and high-speed scanning, and artificial intelligence, machine learning, and robotic process automation solutions. NextGov reports the IRS will put out a solicitation for the three verticals later this year. Nearly 9 out of 10 Pentagon employees say they were as productive working remotely after the pandemic started. New research from the Defense Department Office of Inspector General shows the Marine Corps, Defense Contract Audit Agency, Defense Information Systems Agency, and Defense Logistics Agency were able to shift to remote work immediately. GovExec reports the IG report says the Army, Navy, Air Force, and other organizations struggled during the transition. The F-35 program has a new leader at the vendor Lockheed Martin. Bridget Lauderdale will take over the program as vice president and general manager next week. Defense News reports she's moving from her current job leading Lockheed's F-16 and F-22 programs. She was head of the company's F-35 global sustainment team before that. The latest coronavirus relief bill includes $2 billion for the Labor Department to transform unemployment insurance systems at the state level. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh says the department needs to bring its unemployment system into the 21st century. Jonathan Album is federal chief technology officer at ServiceNow. He's former CIO at the Agriculture Department. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. When you Thank look you. at what uh, Secretary Walsh says has to happen and you look at the money involved, what are steps one, two, and three to make sure it works when it's implemented? Well, Francis, I think that's a, that's a great question because one of the risks in a situation like this, in my opinion, is um, doling out money to states uh, without providing overall guidance and leadership and having a digital strategy around how to do this modernization. You know, when you think about an unemployment system, um, I feel like you can break it into a number of core components. You think about participant engagement, case management, payment systems, fraud detection, reporting, um, a number of core components like that that really are modules. And if the Department of Labor is positioned to play a leadership role here, they can offer up to states um, a variety of solutions to support those individual kinds of capabilities and then work with states to implement those capabilities. Perhaps they could even provide them to some states where um, the states don't have um, the necessary IT capacity to do it on their own. But in, well, I think what we want to get away from is having all of the states, plus D.C., Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, running 53 independent, totally um, separate systems. And I recognize the systems need to be uh, independent because the rules are different, but we don't have to have wholly different sets of technologies. And different limitations um, that come with those individual technologies in each state. It creates a real issue around distributing payments. Um, and there's, I think, an equity issue that we have to talk about as well. I apologize if I'm putting words in your mouth, my friend, but it sounds like you're suggesting the Labor Department become a shared services provider, at least in the service component of this, if not actually providing the, uh, the actual hardware and software itself. So I, I, I think it's more of a uh, leadership provider, technology leadership provider, 
Um, I, I don't know that they necessarily have to provide systems. I, I, I referenced that as a possibility, but even, even more um, specifically, I think they can make certain technologies available to states. They could leverage the buying power of the federal government to have these technologies um, be available to a state to implement and to integrate with existing state systems. I think that if we're thinking um, about using platform technologies, we're thinking about um, scalable solutions, leveraging low-code, no-code concepts that are uh, very popular uh, today. We can think about how we can use these technologies to very um, quickly configure uh, unemployment solutions that can work in a state with unique requirements and 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 existing systems. So um, I think that the primary role for the Department of Labor is to provide leadership and to make solutions available that can work with existing state solutions. From a risk perspective, Jonathan, is it a feature or a bug that each of these 50-some systems is in a different state of evolution? Well, I think it's an indication of how lots of systems have been developed at all levels of government. They've been developed organically over time without a, a, a set strategy. And I think that's the difference here. Um, the the American Recovery Act puts $2 billion in the hands of the Department of Labor to, to do certain things around fraud and equitable access and uh, speeding up payments for individuals without telling them exactly how to do it. So we have a chance to take a strategic pause, think about how we can create a system that scales, that can be used um, in, in multiple locations, that can integrate with existing technologies. So we're not in a situation where we have 53 different versions of a similar uh, system at different levels of um, sophistication and, and modernization. It, it really matters where you live when you become unemployed, unfortunately, in terms of how quickly you can get benefits to get back on your feet. And I think it needs to be uh, more equitable. Is there a model for undertaking a project like this that has worked before, or is the Labor Department embarking on something new here? Uh, I think there's some elements of something that is new. Oftentimes, state systems, uh, and I have some experience with this from my time at USDA, uh, they're they're developed in, independently with uh, some state oversight, uh, some federal oversight, but but largely around how uh, a state wants to operate. And in 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 the end, you end up with lots of versions of. Uh, similar things, which becomes hard. So I, I'm not, uh, in my experience, aware of a program um, that's operated exactly like this, but there's no reason why we can't refocus our attention on, on a different operating model. I think one of the important things that it can do is give us the opportunity to think about how participants interact with these systems and how they interact across similar programs and similar systems on a on on a on a journey when someone needs assistance from from a state and we can we can take a collective uh, approach and think that um, you know modernizing government you know can be um, with with the goal of making it as easy to interact with the government as it is with your your favorite online service and when we do those kinds of things and we integrate uh, new technologies like uh, virtual agents or uh, maybe artificial intelligence, machine learning capabilities to, you know, intelligently route people to the right person to answer a question. We begin to create more of a uh, common approach to how people interact with their government. There's more consistent experiences, and I think that raises the uh, overall appreciation for the services that government provides. Jonathan Album, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks, Francis.
Up next, prepping for a skinny budget for fiscal 2022. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how big a diet might agencies have to take? You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says the Biden administration's first budget request is on the way. The discretionary guide will be the first indication agency leaders have of what could be coming for fiscal 2022. David Hawkins is editor-in-chief of the Fulcrum. David, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Jen Psaki made it sound like the White House is not crazy about the term skinny budget, as uh, one of the members of the press corps called it. What is the discretionary guide and how to get that name? Well, it's just, it, it is pretty simple. It's, it is much less, um, it, it can quite literally be reduced to a skinny booklet rather than a big fat budget books that we're used to, or at least those of us who are used to looking at budgets uh, as analog books. Uh, then they went to CD-ROMs, now they're online. But back in the day, they were big fat budget books that were, that were churned out by the government printing office um, with really down to the minute detail about what the president wanted for every discretionary program, mandatory and taxes as well, but really down down to some, some pretty narrow, uh, pretty finely shaved meat. Um, not doing that anymore. Not even sure at this point, as we're talking now, Francis, whether we're even going to see the skinny budget, which would essentially just be a bare bones, here's how much you should spend at each department, um, have at it, Congress, and figure it out. What does Congress do with that, or do they just kind of look at it, say, that's nice, this is a guide, and then we'll, we'll look at the budget request, or not in some cases, or, when, or not. when it actually rolls out? Well, I think, I think and I, I say this often when I'm, um, when I'm on with you, it, it's important to remember um, that an enormous amount of, of budget work, uh, even in times where we talk about budget standoffs and budget crises and shutdowns, impending shutdowns. Uh, there is an enormous amount of work uh, that the administration and the congressional appropriators are doing on, on matters that are not seen as controversial. So the appropriations committees, uh, are, which are under um, you know, new leadership this, this year, Rosa DeLauro of Connecticut most notably, taking over the House Appropriations uh, Committee. Uh, and of course, the, the Democrats are now in charge uh, on the Senate as well again. Um, they're 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 at work. They're they're working through um, the things you never hear about in the headlines, but that are enormously important to agencies and programs all over the country. So and all over the government. So plenty of work's happening. Um, obviously, in a in a in a so-called trifecta situation where you have a uh, the same party controlling OMB and the two appropriations committees, uh, there's going to be more agreement than not. All that having been said. Um, the political situation uh, when it comes to other Biden administration priorities, um, the, the fact that we now may see uh, the so-called reconciliation uh, process, uh, which gets around the filibuster used for, the, for President Biden's so-called infrastructure package, that might poison the well. There still might be, there are still plenty of reasons to be worried about how the budget process will play out between now uh, and the end of September or likely beyond once again. Uh, but that will come down to big ticket things that are in the headlines. 
many, many things that are not in the headlines will get, will get handled. Um, you and I have been having these conversations for more than 10 years, and I pray on an ongoing basis that someday we can have one without talking about the possibility of a continuing resolution or the, the consequences of a CR that's already in place. Sounds like you're saying that's maybe where we're headed again this year, David. Oh, I think I think it is. I think it is. I mean, the, the um, yes, the appropriations committees are having hearings. Yes, they're doing this, but but there is um, there is a poisonous atmosphere uh, on the hill that uh, we've been for as long as you and I have been talking. Um, the budget process has been more broken than not uh, for more than for as long as you and I have been talking now more than a decade. Uh, the the Congress has been more dysfunctional than not. Things are at a new level. Uh, since January 6th, there is really a lot of bad blood. There's going to be a lot of anger on the Republican side uh, if the Democrats decide to try and advance uh, the president's big next big package, this infrastructure package, uh, without the need for getting any Republican buy-in. Um, and meanwhile, and we've also talked about how Congress has a hard time doing more than one big thing at a time. So after this fight is over, um, there will be other fights. And, and I th yes, I think that the likelihood is um, that, that normal, normal budgeting, uh, which is not, which would be abnormal budgeting, regular budgeting, is not what we're going to see again this year. Yeah, what happened to regular order? It's not regular. This is regular order. Irregular order is the regular order. Right. Uh, we have, just have a couple of minutes left, David. What are the markers or what's the timeline that you will watch to see how on track or off track this process becomes? Oh, well, you'll, you, you will want to see, um, remembering that there is, there are filibusters in the Senate when it comes to appropriations bills. So all this talk that some in the audience may be paying attention to because uh, the people who watch this show pay more attention to the granular movements of policy than some others. But remember that even if even we had the COVID relief bill, which was done with this reconciliation process, no filibuster, now we may have this second bill done uh, with no filibuster under reconciliation. None of that applies uh, to appropriations bills. Appropriations bills are what they call fully debatable. That's the euphemism for meaning the, the minority party can filibuster. That is likely to happen. Um, to see if there's any prospect for normalcy, you'll want to see whether the House side at least starts churning out its dozen bills. Remember, it's supposed to be a dozen different bills. Um, I think you probably will see that happen. Uh, they'll move. They have the majority power to move the bills one at a time. I'm going to guess that Mrs. Deloro will try and do that. Um, and we'll, and we'll, I guess the real marker to see is whether the Senate even tries to do that or whether they don't spend any time at all on their 12 bills and they just wait for some big package which wouldn't be assembled in September, almost certainly would be assembled after the October 1st start of the fiscal year. David Hawkins, thanks very much. Great to have you on the program. Thanks, Francis. Up next, patching the vulnerabilities in the defense supply chain. Straight ahead on Government Matters, assessing the reach of foreign suppliers in the defense industrial base. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. President Biden has nominated Mike Brown as the next Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment. He leads the Defense Innovation Unit now. If the Senate confirms him, he'll have to ensure the health of the defense supply chain after major impacts from coronavirus. Tara Murphy-Doherty is Chief Executive Officer at Govini, and they are looking at an, a reshoring effort. Uh, Tara, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. In July, Ellen Lord, who was in the ANS job at the time, uh, announced this reshoring effort for vulnerable parts of the supply chain. Where's the department on that effort now, and what did you look at exactly, you and your colleagues at Govini, regarding the reshoring effort? Well, thanks for having me, Francis. It's great to be here, as always. And to the point about Mike Brown's nomination for Undersecretary of Acquisition and Sustainment, what a strong position for the Biden administration to take on the importance of expanding the focus on the defense industrial base to include the national security innovation base. I think that's really wonderful and exactly the right direction to continue uh, taking DOD. Toward that end, one of the things that the department is realizing is really important is above and beyond getting a handle on their internal enterprise data sets is the value of external data. One example where that value has really come to light and, uh, you know, COVID underscored the necessity of it is in understanding defense supply chains and all critical supply chains. So the Defense Department has been continuing the efforts that were started under under Secretary Lord. And, you know, they've done a lot of data work in order to just get a handle on what do these supply chains look like and what's the scale of the challenge with respect in particular to the presence of foreign suppliers in DOD. So Gavini took a look at that same question and we were able to really rapidly just evaluate the first five tiers of critical defense supply chains across more than 100 industries. And what we found is that the presence of foreign suppliers has skyrocketed since 2014. In particular, if you just focus on China, which is certainly an area of interest of Mike Brown's and many others in the national security space, you'll see that the presence of Chinese suppliers in the first five tiers of defense supply chains has grown over the past 10 years by 420%. That's staggering, and I think just starting by looking at the data and understanding the baseline of the scale and scope of the problem is a decent starting point. Does the data indicate how this happened, or is there a way to provide context to that number to demonstrate how we got from zero to 420 percent, or does that not matter in trying to go from 420 percent back to zero? Well, it matters to some extent. Most importantly, I think where you start to separate out the presence of foreign suppliers that are U.S. allies and partners and the presence of suppliers or foreign companies that are very much not. And so you look at in uh, you know, 2014, 2015 and 16, you see a, re a very significant increase in the presence of Japanese and South Korean suppliers in particular, significantly less concerning. You know, there may be cases, whether it's companies or critical military defense programs, where we want to own or reshore the entire supply chain. But that should be few and far between. And definitely the United States should be in the context of everything that, um, you know, the overall philosophy, I think, of the current team. We should be thinking about this as reshoring to America, but also about nearshoring with allies and partners. So you, the term there, nearshoring, is exactly what I was thinking about as you're describing that and, and when I first read your work, because 
um, obviously something that's made in Canada is not nearly as uh, uh, doesn't present nearly a vulnerability to the supply chain as something made in China. There's not an adversarial issue there. And so you, you killed my question of what does re reshoring really mean with that term nearshoring. What's the appetite of the Defense Department today? Does the data show how willing they are to count nearshoring as reshoring? So far, I think very willing. Right now, the focus is on getting a handle on the problem. And, you know, a lot of people are thinking about uh, bolstering defense supply chains and reshoring discussions in the context of how do we do this. But there's actually a, a really critical question that precedes that, which is what can be reshored? There are instances where and the first example that comes to mind for most people is, do we even have American or allied manufacturers available? Of course, the allied aspect of that is really important because you greatly expand the portfolio of businesses if you're considering working with allies and partners. But there are uh, parts and you know, legacy systems and of course the know-how that has left the United States in significant ways over the past several decades. Um, and so that availability question is the first part. The second question is, does the United States government own the technical data package associated with the critical component that we're considering reshoring or nearshoring? And it sounds like it's all about data, but it's really about engineering and how that part fits into the overall system. So you first have to answer the question, what is eligible or what can we reshore? And then take on the question of, okay, now how do we do it? Tara Murphy Doherty, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back on the program. Great to see you. You can find a link to her work at govmatters.tv slash resources. Don't forget if you miss an episode of the show, it's on our website too, and you get a preview of every show. When you sign up for our daily program guide, you just text GovMatters to 58671. Back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24 7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes about how government can use software-defined wide-area networks to deliver the best digital experience for constituents and staff. Government agencies are continuing the transition to the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions Vehicle, EIS, for telecom-related services. Industry experts are calling on agencies to use it for citizen-facing government. Tony Bardo is here. He's Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes Network Solutions. Tony, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. What does the EIS vehicle provide for agencies to make these kinds of transitions, to do the network modernization that they need to do? 
It's a great question, uh, as you always do lead off with, uh, Francis, and it's good to see you. We got to talk to you again. But uh, here's it's more interesting really to talk about what it hasn't uh, delivered yet. And uh, GSA faced an interesting conundrum when they were uh, putting EIS together and it was necessary to do so and they had the right vision for it and the right ideas to bring in some new blood and new, new vendors and new kinds of companies. But the, the services available to to the government at the time were still the same services that have been around for 20 years. Um, and that is the, the MPLS network um, services that worked during the end of FTS 2001 and throughout the networks contract. So um, the, the, the new services, the new modern services were just emerging. These are the new SD-WAN, the managed broadband services. And these are the kinds of services that are better equipped for handling the large surge and surges of bandwidth demand for the agencies, particularly at the edge. So what was what the agencies were sort of presented with was, here's a new contract and it's got a new timetable and it's got a new scope of work and a new span of work and a new body of, 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 uh, of a performance period, but it didn't really have the new services that met the goal or the the mantra of transforming so what we saw in some of the early um fair opportunities that uh, that the agencies were issuing and it really took them a long time to start issuing them um but they're they're, they're they were basically asking for like for like services and that wasn't really a uh, a plan for transforming. And it didn't, the, many of the fair opportunities, unfortunately, did not show the, the vision for transforming. SD-WAN was emerging, so it was a tough call. It was a, you know, we've got to get this contract, new contract out, because the old contract is aging, it's expiring, it's got its uh, limited time frame. So it was an interesting, um, you ask an interesting question. It, it, the platform really wasn't ready there to, to, uh, to transform and leap into transformation and modernization. It's starting to happen though. You uh, gave me a term before we started recording and I want, to tell, want you to tell me what it means and why it's important. Managed service provider why does that matter to agencies and, and why is that concept helpful to them in these transitions, Tony? The concept, concept is really helpful because the, the, pro, the providers and the services and managing them um, makes it easier for the agencies. These, these agency telecom managers have really got it tough. They, 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 have, this, they have this contract that they were uh, compelled to use and and encouraged to use and they wanted to modernize uh, they're running their own networks today every day they have to issue these fair opportunities to compete the business among the uh, providers the, the prime uh, contractors on EIS and they've got to do it all at the same time and all with the same workload and workforce that they that they have so these are really really tough getting obtaining managed services takes the burden off of the limited staffs of the agencies and lets the lets the 
um, service providers do the work. So managed service providers can then um, offer these services, manage the networks, manage the uh, security aspects of the networks, manage the routing of the traffic on the networks through the modern architectures of broadband, managed broadband, and managed SD-WAN. Tony, there's always more great ideas to talk about than there is time to talk about them. It's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Take care.